Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Here's Beth Mulcahy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our first Fridays. This is Beth Mulcahy from the Mulcahy Law Firm, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today. So we're going to dig right into the questions. I'm so happy to have so many people here today. It looks like we have over 50 people here with us live on Zoom and on Facebook Live. So thank you very much for being here. Hope you're having a great month. Can't wait for the cooler temperatures to finally reach Arizona here in the future. Let's dig right into the questions. Right now, we have about 35 questions. So we've got a very full plate for today. And just, you know, if anybody's having difficulty hearing me, if you could put a message in either the Zoom or on the Facebook Live chat for Zoom or on the comments for Facebook Live, and just let us know. We definitely want to hear the feedback. Okay, the first question is from a board member. Can a board member who is in violation of the presently enforced design review guidelines Vote to change that guideline to allow something that is presently in violation. It would obviously benefit that board member. Okay, this is definitely a sticky wicket. So first of all, first things first, the board members shouldn't be in violation of any existing documents for the association, whether it's a design review guidelines or CCNRs or rules. So that would be strike number one. Strike number two would be that now the board member is actively trying to lobby to get this design review guideline changed so that it's not a violation for this person. To me, this sounds like a breach of their fiduciary responsibility to the association. Of course, guidelines get changed from time to time, but this owner obviously has a special interest in this particular guideline and this owner serves as a board member. And so my recommendation would be that this board member not be lobbying for this. If there's other homeowners who want to introduce it, the board certainly can review it. If I were this board member that is in violation of this particular guideline, I think it would be prudent and in the best interests of this particular board member due to possible conflicts of interest being raised to not vote on this particular issue if it does come to a vote. So sometimes we do see disappointing facts like this. I really just want to remind all board members that you're held to the highest standard when you're serving on the board. And you really need to be careful that you're the example for the association and you need to make extra efforts to make sure that you are not violating the association's documents in any way. Next question from a board member. Our HOA is considering a new short-term rental amendment to the CCNRs. Is 100% owner approval required or will the 66 and two-thirds in the current CCNRs suffice? First, I can tell from the name of your association some information about your association, but I don't know if you're a condominium or you're a planned community. I also don't know what type of short-term rental you plan to you know, implement. Are you going to or amendment you're going to planning to implement? Are you going to totally prohibit CCNR or totally prohibit rental restrictions? Are you going to put a minimum time restriction in place? So there's a lot of unknown variables here. If you are a condominium, I don't think you are in this case, but there are some heightened special requirements if you're going to try to prohibit rentals entirely or short-term rentals entirely in your association. You need heightened scrutiny if you're a condominium. If you're a planned community, you will need to go by what's in your CCNRs. I really urge you to consult with our firm because these short-term rental amendments are tricky, especially in light of a new case that was decided by the Supreme Court of Arizona. So before you proceed forward, you definitely want to get some legal advice on this. Okay, next question is from a board member. Is it legal for an HOA to require yearly certification proof for a service animal and support animals? Some owners feel this is harassment. So we have a great cheat sheet on pets in your community association that I would suggest that you take a look at. 
is a yearly certification overkill? I don't know a lot of associations, frankly, that do the yearly certification. If there is a substantial change in people, maybe their pet passes away, or there's a new pet that shows up that's different from the pet that they provided the original information on for the pet to be a support animal, it's possible that the association may be reaching out to the owner to ask for more information. But I would say, is it legal? It's not illegal. That would be the first thing that I would say. Is it reasonable is probably the better question. And that's a question mark for me to answer this. It just depends on the circumstances. Okay, question number four from a board member. The CCNRs of our HOA define a party wall as a wall on the dividing line between adjacent lots. If the wall on the dividing line is part of a standalone house, is it still considered a party wall? I'd have to see your CCNRs to give a definitive answer on this. But yes, I do think if it's defined as, as you say, the dividing line between adjacent lots and the walls on the dividing line, it possibly could be considered a party wall. It appears that's what's going on here, but I'd have to see pictures and look at the plaid and also look at your CCNRs to give you a real specific answer. Question number five from a board member. Our CCNRs prohibit signs in a homeowner's yard. We received an email from a homeowner citing Arizona statutes where we cannot prohibit political or commercial signs in yards. When a homeowner purchases a home in a community with CCNRs, they are bound to follow them. Doesn't our CCNRs take precedence over this statute? So we have a great, some good information for you. If you want to go check out 33-1808, this is Arizona Revised Statutes, 33-1808. And this defines what Arizona law is on political signs and other signs that are allowable under the law. So I haven't seen your CCNRs for your association, but based upon the information that you've provided to me, I do want you to know that state law does trump your CCNRs on this particular matter. Political signs, of course, are covered under Arizona Revised Statutes and associations cannot prohibit an owner to put up a political sign in a, a time frame outlined in the statute before and after elections, including primaries. On commercial signs, that's a little bit different because a commercial sign, there is no law in Arizona pertaining to commercial signs. Now, if you're referring to a commercial sign as a for sale or a for lease sign, then that also would be covered under Arizona law. And that's also in 33-1808. So short answer, in my opinion, the state law does trump your association CCNRs with regard to political signs, for sale signs, and for lease signs. Okay, next question is from one of my very favorite clients who is on the board. Our CCNRs state the board shall have the right to refuse to approve any such plans or specifications or grading plans that are not suitable or desirable in its opinion for aesthetic or other reasons. Is this still legal in Arizona? So great question. This is pretty open-ended and it gives the board a lot of discretion or the architectural committee a lot of discretion in terms of do they approve something? Do they not approve something? It is still legal. Many associations have this language. Thousands of associations in Arizona have the same language that's very broad. But I think the advice that I give clients that come to me wanting me to interpret the section is that, okay, it's very broad, but you need to have valid reasons if you are not going to approve something. Because if the homeowner challenges this and takes it to court, we have to be able to explain to a judge and or jury, why it is objectionable to the board. And that has to withstand any challenges that the homeowner may have for the free use and enjoyment of their land. So if you're going to deny something, you shouldn't be just denying it because you don't like it or you don't like the way it looks. I see a lot of associations, boards deny things because, for example, maybe the color palette, trying to paint their home and the color palette is completely different from the rest of the homes in the neighborhood and they want to keep the aesthetics similar. So like a dark plum colored house wouldn't fit in an association that maybe has all Navajo white homes. 
Or maybe the homes all in the community are one story and somebody wants to build a three-story home. Just having the facts to support your decision and then making sure that if you are going to disapprove something and it's going to be challenged by the owner, making sure that you're reaching out to your legal counsel so that you structure the disapproval in a way that it's going to withstand any legal challenges. Next question from a homeowner. Question number seven. Do you represent homeowners who associ- whose association is not doing their job? There are no HOA meetings now for several years. If you do not represent, can you recommend? So great question. This always breaks my heart when I hear about situations like this. And I know there are many good associations, but some associations that need our help a little bit more than others. And they're not following corporate formalities. They're not following Arizona law. And oftentimes homeowners are listening in to our presentation today and they need to know what do we do? So first, to answer your question, first, no, I don't represent individual owners against associations. But I am always encouraging of homeowners to listen in to all of our presentations and broadcasts and classes so that you can take our information back to your board and help them do a better job running the association. So first line of defense would be give them a copy of this broadcast today. All of our broadcasts are available on our website or our YouTube channel for our firm. And it's an easy link that you can cut and paste. It's also available immediately after the class on Facebook Live. And so provide this information to your board that you are supposed to be having regular board meetings. And you should be having at least at a minimum an annual meeting every year. And there are laws that you need to be aware of. And serving on an HOA or condo board, it's a requirement that you are aware of the state laws and the federal laws that pertain to you. And if you don't follow them, you will be sued in superior court or you'll somebody will file a complaint with the Arizona Department of Real Estate and there are going to be negative consequences for your association. So try to get them in the education loop. If that is not successful, then please reach out to me and I can give you the names of several attorneys that represent homeowners only. And they may have to institute a legal action or send a demand letter to your association to wake them up and get them to comply with the law. Okay, next question. Number eight from a board member. What types of voting opportunities need to go to all owners instead of just the members present at the HOA meeting? Well, that really depends on what your CCNR say. But typically, the type of things that all owners vote on would be increases in the assessment rate above a certain percentage as defined in your CCNRs. Special assessments typically require a vote of the membership. Amending your CCNRs requires a vote of the membership. And again, it's going to be specific to whatever the CCNRs say in terms of what the percentage is to amend. Removing a director from office, board member from office, is going to require a vote of the membership. Sometimes changing the use of the common areas is something that's going to require a vote of the membership. So there are electing board members is another thing where it requires a vote of the membership. Amending the bylaws, amending the articles of incorporation. These are all examples of things that need to go to the owners instead of just the members that are present at an HOA meeting. Okay, question nine from a board member. Our community has a few homeowners who will periodically rent their unit to a friend for one plus month, or for some reason, they are not able to be there for the entire season. Would they also be required to register their unit as a rental with the county according to the state laws regarding rental properties? So we have a great cheat sheet that I want to let you know about. It's called How to Effectively Deal with Rental Properties. And we're going to be sharing a link with you on that shortly. So I guess the short answer is, is there money being exchanged? And if so, then this is a traditional rental. And if that's the case, they do need to be registered with the county as a rental. And the county, if they're not registered and someone calls the county and the city that the property is located in and for lack of better words, snitches on them, the county or the city will follow up on this 
and we'll reach out to them regarding the potential rental of the property because they don't want to miss out on that rental tax that they receive. But there are times where people slip between the cracks, like they'll say it's a friend or maybe no money's being exchanged. And it may be difficult to prove that there is actually a business transaction going on in these situations. Okay, for those of you who might be just joining us, it looks like we have over 70 people here today. Great. Thanks for being here. We had some technical difficulties this morning, which is prohibiting me from being um, on the screen with the video because of a bandwidth problem. But I'm still here. We didn't give up. We are charge forward no matter what kind of law firm. And so we're just going to be doing this today um, with just the audio. So I apologize if you're just joining us and you're wondering, where is Beth? I'm here, but unfortunately, we have a little bit of an internet problem and um, I'm going to have to do this presentation today without the visual camera on. Okay. But if you stay till the end, I'll turn it on so you know that I actually am here and I'm not in my pajamas because at the end, we won't need the bandwidth and I'll give you a wave. Okay. So our next question is going to be from a board and it's question number 10. What circumstances can an HOA hold up the sale of a unit? other than unpaid assessments or unpaid fines for violations. First of all, I'm cautious about holding up the sale of a unit for anything because we don't want the association to get sued for damages for interfering with contractual relationship between a seller and a buyer of a condo or home. What I can tell you is that there is a disclosure law in Arizona and a disclosure statute. And when there is a sale of a unit, typically the title company will contact the association or the association's management company. And pursuant to law, what they do is they notify us that there's going to be a sale of the property. And the association prepares what we call a disclosure statement and provides it to the buyer. And we can charge a fee for this and all the different categories of information that we provide to the buyer are in the disclosure statement. One of the issues or one of the questions that the association answers in the disclosure statement is, do the records of the association show that there is a violation on this lot? And so obviously the association should be disclosing any known violations pertaining to the lot or unit prior to the sale on the disclosure statement. Also, if, it's, if there's pending litigation pertaining to the lot, that will be disclosed on the disclosure statement. So that information is provided. Occasionally, when it's a real serious violation, we'll also send a letter to the owner and the owner's realtor regarding the violation so that the realtor also is responsible to notify anybody who is looking at the property that there are violations on the property in addition to the owner. And so trying to hold up the sale is probably not a good strategy. What typically happens is the buyer becomes aware of the violation and they demand that this is corrected as part of the closing. Most of these issues are resolved. In some cases, they're not. And then just buyer beware because if the buyer purchases a lot with the violation, the violation stays with the lot. So the new buyer may be on the hook to cure the violation down the road if the association is going to find them or sue them to correct the violation. So it's dangerous for a buyer if they buy something with a known violation and we're still within our statute of limitations to pursue them. Okay, next question. Let's see. ARS 33-1252 and 13-52 are confusing. Does it mean the board must have 80% of the owners agree to allow an owner to extend the patio fence a few feet into the limited common area in front of their existing patio? Or may the board make that decision without the 80%? Nothing in the documents at this time. Okay, so you're looking at something in the Condominium Act and we're talking about a conveyance or encumbrance of the common areas. And this is a more detailed question. I'd have to know exactly, you're talking about the extending of a patio fence into a few feet of the limited common areas. I haven't seen your association's documents either. So I don't know if there's anything specific in your documents on this. So this is one that's tough for me to answer. But what I will say is some general advice would be, be really careful about allowing any owner to extend into the limited common elements or into the common areas without getting some specific advice from your attorney. 
Okay, next question. Question 12 from a board member. A homeowner in our HOA has mature eucalyptus trees in the owner's backyard that were planted more than a decade ago. The block wall surrounding the homeowner's lot also is a a contiguous part of the HOA's common wall. The base of one of the trees now has pushed out a section of the wall. The CCNRs specifically state that the homeowner is responsible for all landscaping on their lot. The HOA only maintains the front yards and common areas. If a tree were to fall and or cause a portion of the common wall to fall, does the HOA have any liability for repair? So it's, I'm seeing that this in this, these tree questions are always hard questions, just so you know, especially when the association maintains the front yard and the trees located in the front yard. You're giving me some good facts here because the tree is in the backyard um, and the association only maintains the front yards, not the backyard. So when a tree like this falls, a large tree, typically the owner is going to be responsible for the damage because the tree is located on their property. And I guess the question is, if it falls on, if the tree were to fall and, and cause a portion of the common wall to fall, do we have liability to repair it? Well, we definitely want to put it back to its original condition. As an association, we possibly have a claim against the owner. Maybe the owner's insurance will pay for it. All of that will need to be sorted out after the damage occurs and also how much it's going to cost, etc. So tough question to answer. But I think the bottom line is, is the tree is the on the owner's lot. The owner is responsible for maintaining that tree. Tree falls and causes damage. General rule of thumb would be the owner would be responsible for repairing the damage at their cost. Okay, next question from a manager. Thank you so much for being here today. Question number 13. We are overrun with feral cats. We have a source to trap, neuter, and return the cats. The return is the issue. When we are told it is the law that they must stay, except for those that might be adoptable. They have damaged roofs over $1,000 last year, and the stench is overwhelming. One renter moved because he could not use his patio. Can you give us some information? Do we have to have 20 cats in an area of 16 units? We have rules in place for indoor cats only. Cameras are being installed to see who is feeding them. We love animals, but something has to be done. I agree, cats stay because the there's a food source. There's a food and water source there somewhere. And so trying to determine where that water and food is coming from is probably your best bet to get the cats to stop coming back. You don't want to have those cameras pointing at anybody's unit or lot because that's going to be an invasion of privacy. But you may have to hire like an off-duty patrol or security company to come in and monitor things. That's one suggestion. I'm sure if you ask your neighbors who's feeding the cats, somebody's seen something. So you may even want to have a meeting of your owners to discuss the issue and try to come up with some solutions to the problem. You may want to contact Humane Society to see if there's anything that they can do to assist you with this issue. There may be some things that you can put out that would be deterrence to having the cats stay. Obviously not poison, something that a smell that they wouldn't like and that may cause them to go somewhere else. But I sympathize with you. This is a difficult problem. But I think probably the best solution is to eliminate the food and water source, number one, and then reach out to your city that you live in and also the Humane Society to see if they have any suggestions on how they might be able to help you solve this. Next question, number 14, from somebody who's on the board. If the HOA Architectural Committee is approving building plans that are in conflict with the current HOA CCNRs, what is the liability of the board? And what is the risk to the homeowners who are moving forward with the plans that are in conflict with the CCNRs? As an example, the CCNRs state, no structure, whatever, other than one private single family residence together with a private garage for not more than three cars shall be erected, placed or permitted to remain on any lot. And the architectural committee is approving RV garages with casitas. I'd have to look at the plans and maybe look a little bit more carefully at this situation, but 
generally speaking, if the architectural committee is approving plans that do actually conflict with your CCNRs, the homeowner that's building it, if they have a written approval from the association's board, they're probably okay because they followed the procedure. The board could have liability and could be sued for violating the CCNRs. So that's of concern. I think the thing that you really have to look at here is the committee is approving RV garages with casitas. I don't know if the casita is attached to the original structure. I don't know if the RV garage is in addition to the three private garage. Was it in addition to the three car garage already? There's a lot of facts here that I don't know. So Bottom line is, if the architectural committee is approving things that are in violation of the CCNRs, that's a problem. The board's going to get sued if somebody's upset about it. If you want to change how things are operating, then the way to do it is to amend the CCNRs. Get a vote of your homeowners to amend the CCNRs. What you really don't want to do is start approving things that are in violation of your CCNRs because ultimately someone may be upset about it and enforce the CCNRs, which are a contract against the board. So difficult situation. Thank you for bringing that question. Okay, next question, number 15 from a board member. In regard to open meetings, you have previously mentioned workaround, loophole, would be less than a quorum could meet. That's true, just comment before I get back into the question. This is a true statement, but without further clarification, does this advice promote only certain board members meeting and not including the complete board? All board members should be included in a sidebar discussion on important board business. Please elaborate and clarify. Great question. So of course, my advice to all of our clients is follow the open meeting law. Anytime a quorum of the board is meeting to discuss association business, it needs to be an open meeting and 48 hours need notice needs to be given to the membership. And it has to be an open meeting where owners are allowed to attend, listen, and participate if they so choose. But there are some times where maybe... The board right now, typically a lot of boards are working on the budget and maybe not everybody's in town and less than a quorum is meeting to do the first draft of the budget. I don't have any problem with that. I think that is smart use of time and it's not violating the law. If board members are feeling like they're being left out and other board members less than a quorum are meeting to discuss association business, what I would recommend is that the board member that's feeling left out ask that they stop doing it and start having everything being done in the open session where a quorum of the board is there. But that being said, there's really no violation of the law if less than a quorum is meeting. And there's probably not much the board member that's feeling left out can do if, if that continues. So I guess the thing to do is be get more like-minded people to serve on the board and run for the board in the future so that you can implement the type of changes you want in the way you want the association to be run. Okay, next question. Number 16 from a board member. We are finding it difficult to know how to handle a renter in our neighborhood who is clearly engaged in drug activity. The homeowner has the home in an LLC and has been unresponsive to all violation notices thus far. Naturally, we're seeking to reach the $1,200 threshold of violations as action can be taken then. In the meantime, we cannot get much of a response from police force. What steps can an HOA take to build a case against renters and homeowners when residents are daily sharing that they're scared, experiencing dangerous and consistent visitors in the neighborhood? Okay, a couple things. I'm a little bit worried by a portion of your question. The first thing was the $1,200 threshold for violations. There is no such threshold for fines or violations. Maybe it's your own associations, you know, like benchmark that you've created. Like once we've levied fines of $1,200, then we're going to file a justice court action against the owner to collect on the violation. Maybe that's your own thing that you have for your association. I'm worried that you might be confusing it with the threshold in order to foreclose. That's why I'm just mentioning that, which is different. Okay. What can an association do that's in your situation? We've got a bad tenant that potentially is violating the law. So number one, you need to turn this matter over to your attorney. The attorney should write a letter to the 
members of the LLC in this case, and make them aware of a law that says that owners have an obligation to act if they know or to abate criminal activity on their property. And if they don't, they can be prosecuted. So the owner, even though they're an LLC, they have a duty to act to abate any criminal activity on a property. So your attorney should be writing that letter now, threatening them with, okay, you could be liable now for not abating this criminal activity. I think that's a very good idea. I also would go to your local police precinct and have great documentation of all the illegal activity that's going on in your association right now at this lot and ask them to start monitoring it and doing drive-bys. You may want to hire a off-duty police officer or security company if there truly is a feeling that this is becoming a dangerous situation in your neighborhood. I would continue to fine for violations of your CCNRs, your bylaws, and your rules by these tenants against the owner. And if the behavior continues, escalate this and have the attorney file a lawsuit against the owner to abate the criminal activity and to hold the owner accountable. I'm sorry you're in this situation, and I hope that some of these suggestions will help your association. Okay, question 17 from a board member. Our original POA board incorporated the POA as a nonprofit. Since the Arizona Planned Communities Act does not pertain to nonprofits, can we, should we dissolve the existing corporation and file for a new corporation as an HOA slash POA? Okay, it's hard for me to answer this question because I don't know, I don't have your CCNRs, I don't believe, and I don't you know, know exactly how you were set up. But my initial reaction on this is, All associations in Arizona, almost all of them, I'd say like 99.999% are incorporated as a nonprofit corporation. And that really has nothing to do with the fact that um, I think you have it wrong here and that you're saying you made the statement here that the Arizona Planned Community Act does not pertain to nonprofits. It does if you're set up as a planned community. Most of our clients are nonprofits and the Planned Communities Act does apply to them. So I want to make sure that's really clear. In terms of whether you should dissolve the existing corporation and file a new corporation, I'd have to look at what was initially set up for your association, but I would very much advise against doing that until you get legal advice. Okay, next question, number 18, from a board. When, are, when any property changes hands in a community with an HOA, the HOA assesses a transfer fee. The transfer fee, however, has two components, a transfer fee and a disclosure fee. And the disclosure fee must be paid by the seller. Would it be valid for the total transfer fee to be split between the HOA treasury and the property management company? Is anyone doing that? So we have a great cheat sheet that my office, I think, just shared with you or will be sharing with you shortly on disclosure fees versus transfer fees. And you definitely need to take a look at that. All of our cheat sheets are located on our website, also at mulcahylawfirm.com. Just click on the cheat sheets page. Okay. It sounds like in your association, you have a transfer fee and that needs to be set up consistent with Arizona law and it has to be recorded and as an amendment to your CCNRs, typically if it's not already in there. And it has to have very specific language that the Arizona revised statutes requires. Apparently though, you're saying that your transfer fee has two components, a transfer and a disclosure fee. I think maybe you're probably confused because they're separate typically and they're both set up under Arizona law, but they're different. So the transfer fee has to be in the CCNRs to be valid and comply with all aspects of Arizona law. The disclosure fee is something that's statutory and set up in the statute in Arizona, in the Planned Communities Act and the Condominium Act. It doesn't have to be in the CCNRs. So the question is, would it be valid for the total transfer fee to be split between the HOA Treasury and the property management company? I don't know how you guys are currently doing this. Typically in our industry, the transfer fee goes to the association and typically the disclosure fee is negotiated between the association and the association's property management company as to who's going to get the disclosure fee. I would say probably in 90% of the time, the management company is paid the disclosure fee because they're doing all the work 
to prepare the disclosure statement. So sometimes the management company will split the fee with the association for the disclosure fee. But in most cases, the money goes typically to the association by statute. And then the association reimburses the management company as per the management contract. So it really just depends. You'll have to look at the management contract and determine how your association has set this up with your management company if you have one. Okay, we have 36 questions. So we're at the halfway point, which is awesome, right on time. Next question, question number 19 is from a board member. If our CCNRs do not have any language concerning rental of townhomes, and we currently do not have any owner using their townhome for short-term rentals, with the new statute that was passed, is it still possible to add an amendment that says rentals have to be for a three-month minimum and what percentage of homeowner approval would we need for this to pass? So great question, short-term rentals. We don't have any in our community right now, this owner or this board member is telling us, but we are worrying about this for the future. What percentage do we need to have this passed? Well, I don't have you know your CCNR, so it's hard for me to take a look at this. I don't know if you're a condominium or your planned community. This is something that can be done, but we have to look carefully at the language of your documents and what it takes to amend the documents and determine whether you're a condominium or a planned community. It's going to be easier to do this if you're a planned community. Visit our office, contact me so I can take a look at your documents and give you more specific help on this. Question 20 from the budget chair for an association. We are a large master plan community with two resident controlled associations and a unifying entity that manages common areas and amenities. The unifying entity is controlled by the developer. The associations pass on assessment proceeds to the unifying entity and the unifying entity enters into contracts and agreements such as like landscape maintenance and management, restaurant leases. Essentially, residents pay the costs and have been advised that the unifying entity's contracts are not public. Does this approach confirm conform with Arizona law? So I can see from the name of your association that you are a large master plan community. And I can also see from how you describe this question, you have two resident controlled associations, and then it looks like a master association, which you're referring to as a unifying entity that manages the common areas and the amenities. And so you want to know, can we have documents pertaining to the association for the master policy, for the master association? You know, my feeling is yes, you can. You're going to have to look at the Planned Communities Act, this section on records requests and the type of records that you can request from the managed master plan community board. And so what I would recommend is that you look at our cheat sheet on the top 10 things you need to know about Arizona law. I think number five on that is records requested at five or 10, I can't remember. And look at how to make a records request and then ask to see these documents. Now contracts, you cannot see how much the contract is how much compensation is being paid in the contract. You can see a copy of the contract so they they can redact it. Of course, you can find out how much is being paid by asking for a year-to-date budget. So there's really, I don't like to play hide the ball on that. I always tell my clients, you know, just give the owners the contract and don't redact how much is owed because there's 10 different places they can look to get it. So it does seem unusual to me that your master board still controlled by the developer is not giving you that information. And I would maybe have your attorney send the master board a letter demanding the information because it looks like maybe you're the budget chair. I don't know if you're on the board. If you're not, you could do it as a homeowner. Okay, next question. Number 21 from a homeowner. Our board announced via text message sending a link to a closed executive session announcement. The announcement said, pursuant to Arizona law, directors will be meeting in a closed executive session. After several emails from me, they did add the correct ARS reference by amending this to the section in the Planned Communities Act, but nothing else. Do they need to provide some description of what they are discussing? And what are the notification requirements since they did not use their normal meeting announcement protocols? Okay, so this question circles around to board having an executive session meeting. How much information do they have to disclose to their members that they're going to be discussing in the executive session and is giving notice by a text message enough? 
So a couple thoughts. So anytime a board's going into executive session, the notice of the meeting needs to state with particularity which specific sections under Arizona law the board is going to be discussing that are the closed executives topics. You know, in 33-1804, there are five areas that the board can go into to discuss during the executive session. So you should cite the specific language of the statute. It looks like your board only put like the statute number and then the subsection number and they didn't actually list. It looks like one and two. So it was advice from your attorney. And then if there was any litigation, it's probably okay. And I always tell my clients go the extra mile because we want the homeowners to actually know what you're going to be talking about. And if you only reference the statute number and you put parentheses subsection one and subsection two, they may not know what that is. So I would say overcorrect by giving them plenty of information so you don't have people guessing and not knowing what's going on, what you're going to be discussing in the executive session. I don't know if your board only sent out a notice by text or if they put a notice on the website and then they just did a little add-on with the text. The statute's pretty loosey-goosey on how notice can be given. It can be given by posting or by any other reasonable means. So you just want to make sure that if you have everybody's text, that probably would be considered a reasonable means. If you don't, then maybe you need to have a couple other crossovers. Like it also needs to be posted on the website or something like that. So hope that answers your question. Question 22 from a board president. Solar panels. We don't deny solar panels, but rather the panels installed on a patio cover that do not lay flat. CCNRs indicated that they should match the roof angle and not disrupt the neighbor's view and paint all piping the same as the roof. In the case of panels attached to property cover, they are installed at a 20 to 30 degree angle, exposing the unsightly underside of the panel. The solution would be to build a parapet wall on the patio cover to enclose the underside. Do solar laws prohibit the HOA from enforcing the enclosure around the angled panels? Solar panels are really a tough question for associations. So we have a great cheat sheet for you called solar panels on one side and then creating a green community on the other side of the cheat sheet. We're going to be sharing that with you on Zoom and Facebook Live. And you can always find it on our website too at mulcahylawfirm.com. So bottom line, if you are going to require... First, let's do a little backup. Associations cannot effectively prohibit the use of solar panels in an association's, right? That's the law. And so if by requiring the owner to build a parapet wall, and there's an expense to doing that, when the owner objects, now we go in to look at the criteria as outlined in the Garden Lakes case. And we look at the value of the property and how much are we asking the owner to spend to build the parapet wall to make it look aesthetically more pleasing. It's a question mark in my mind whether or not a court will uphold the association's judgment in requiring an owner to build the parapet walls here to screen the underbelly of the solar panels. My, I was one of the attorneys that worked on the Garden Lakes case very early in my career. That was probably back in 2002. I've been around for a while now, 25 years. And I can tell you that associations have a very difficult time winning in court on these solar panel cases. And it very well, the Garden Lakes case, the association wanted the owner to build a wall around the solar panel on the roof, similar to this, but it was more of a three, three different sections around it. So side, front, side. And the court found that was, you know, an unreasonable request by the association. So I think you're in really dangerous territory if you're trying to push the solution if the owner doesn't agree to it. And really the court in the Garden Lakes case didn't like the cost on it. Even if it's a minimal cost, you'd be surprised. They think it's effectively prohibiting the owner from installing it. Okay, next question. Number 23, we have a list of recommended vendors that have been shared by our homeowners. Our board has refused to print this on the website saying that they could be liable. They're not recommending anyone. This is just a list of recommendations from people that live in the neighborhood. How can I convince them that it is a service to homeowners in our HOA? We have a lot of new people that can really benefit from the information. So I really, I do understand where you're coming from as a homeowner wanting your board to do this. However, as legal counsel for the association, I'm in full agreement with the board that it's not appropriate for the association to have that on their website. 
What you could do is you could maybe do a posting as a homeowner on Nextdoor or maybe even start a Facebook page that's called whatever ABC homeowners helping homeowners or something like that and post the information there. And that way, it's not something that the board is should be doing, frankly. And I think that's a great way to get the information out and win-win for everybody. Okay, the next question is question number 24 from board member. Are there any guidelines or limitations that the board should follow when updating rules and regulations for the community? And should they be recorded? So what I would recommend if you're thinking about updating your rules is look at the ability to amend them. Typically, it's going to be in the bylaws, giving the board to the right to amend the rules. You'll want to, anytime the board's discussing this at a board meeting, I would notify through the meeting notice for the regular board meeting that the board's discussing rule changes. Run the rule changes by your legal counsel to make sure that there's nothing in there that's conflicting with your documents or state or federal laws. Rules, then when you go to vote on them, make sure that the notice of the meeting shows what the proposed rule changes are going to be so that people can attend if they're interested in it. And then if the board passes them, it's just it's included in the minutes that the board takes a vote to pass them. They don't need to be recorded. That's not something that is done in Arizona. And then make sure everybody gets a copy of the new rules so they're known that the changes have been made and so that owners will comply with them. Okay, next question um, from a board, question number 25. Our association is in a lot of turmoil. A number of owners do not feel that the board is listening to them and out of frustration have been meeting to articulate their questions and concerns for submission to the board. Recently, our president wrote a letter to the membership revealing the names of owners who have legal issues pending, oh, fines, and are disparaging other unit owners they have issues with. According to our bylaws and rules, these issues need to be discussed in a closed executive session. Is this legal for our president to do this? So I guess I kind of divide this. There's so many issues here. This is like a bar exam question. And so number one, I'm just going to back up a little bit. Hey, your board needs to have a reality check that things aren't going well, number one. And if you have owners that are frustrated and they are upset about how things are going, your board really should be listening and maybe have a town hall meeting to air grievances and to try to find some common ground and answer questions and work together. That would be my first suggestion if I were this association's legal counsel. You've got owners that aren't happy. They are your constituents. And even though you're not paid, you need to listen. Because really, the next step I would tell the board is, hey, they're going to do a removal petition. And that's going to cost your association a lot of money. You don't want to have that happen. So try to nip this in the bud and be good communicators. Have a town hall. Try to build a consensus and community by doing that. But it appears instead that your association has gone on the offensive and they are now calling people out for raising issues and owing money and all these other things. Now, I don't know what they wrote. I'm not saying it's illegal. Disparaging other owners, I don't know what that means. But if they're saying things that are untrue, it could be considered defamation. If they're disclosing that somebody owes money, our firm doesn't recommend that, but it's not illegal. If they're saying somebody's in violation and owes fines, I don't recommend that, but it's not illegal. So, I mean, I just think your board's taking a lot of wrong turns here and they really need to have a reality check and change their ways and talk to the owners and try to have some consensus or they're going to either be voted out or removed through a removal meeting. What I would do is put your efforts towards getting good candidates to run for the board in the future to try to change the composition of the board. Okay, next question. We have a homeowner. What can a, and one of my favorite homeowners too, who used to be board president, what can a unit owner do when a request or maintenance request to make a change to the common area goes unanswered for over three months? So I don't know exactly what the request is that you're asking for. Maybe it's to like trim trees, it's maintenance request, or maybe there's an issue with the lift at the pool, or I don't know what the issue is. But, you know, I would go to the board meeting, whether it's by Zoom or in person. And during the homeowner forum at the beginning, I would raise the issue again. Hey, I sent this letter. I sent this email. Can you let me know the status? You could reach out to one of the board members. You could reach out to the management company. 
but sometimes squeaky wheel gets greased. So I would say continue to follow up frequently with the board until you get the desired result or an answer as to why it's not being done. Okay, next question, number 27. I want to confirm that when you prepare and send out a delinquent dues demand letter, that the associated fees for this service are added to the delinquent amount. So short answer would be yes. So if you have an attorney sending a letter on behalf of the association, the amount of the fees for the the letter, the attorney's fees, will be added to the total amount owed by the owner as indicated in the letter. And we always attach a ledger. And so the ledger will have a full breakdown of all the unpaid assessments, late fees, attorney's fees, costs, interest, if interest is charged, um, listed. So it's very easy for the owner to understand how much is owed. Okay, the next question, number 28 is, let's see, board member question. Our board is voting to change our bylaws requiring all committee chairmen and members to sign a code of conduct. Our current code of conduct bylaws state will be asked to sign. And it sounds like your current bylaws don't require you to sign it as a board member, but you'll be asked to sign it. Now the board wants to change the bylaws to say it's required to sign a code of conduct, saying this is a policy change, not a bylaw change, circumventing the vote of the residents. Ooh, that's not good. Committee members are resigning. What legal points may I present to fellow board members to perhaps vote against this policy change and to keep our committees? Okay, so... Apparently, your board wants all committee chairmen and committee members to sign a code of conduct, and they're trying to force it through, not by amending the bylaws, but by just saying, if you don't sign this, you know, you are, you can't serve on the committee. And it looks like, I think what you're trying to say is they're changing the bylaws, but they're not doing it with a vote of the membership. So, okay, wrong and wrong. You cannot amend the bylaws just as a, what did you call it here? You said a policy change. No, you can't do that. You have to follow the procedure to amend your bylaws. I'm sure there's a percentage vote that is required. They would have to go through the procedure to amend the bylaws to add this provision. I'm stating that committee members and committee chairs have to sign this code of conduct. Now, is this something that I think is a good idea? I don't know. We only bring out the code of conduct when there is such a dysfunction on the board that we don't, that's really the only thing we think we can do to try to turn it around. So is your association at that point? Maybe it is, I don't know. But my feeling is the code of conduct is, it's an extra thing that some associations that have a high level of dysfunction use to get people to understand their responsibilities and their fiduciary duties to the corporation. We have a cheat sheet on this exact topic. Um, It's called Code of Conduct for board members. You can find it on our website. We don't typically see the Code of Conduct for committees. So I think it's odd that we're hearing about this here. And again, even for board members, it's very rare. It's more, it's like I said, it's when it's dysfunction central. That's usually when I bring out the Code of Conduct and suggest that the board consider having everybody on the board adopt it. So I just don't think that the way that they're approaching this here is a good idea. And you're probably, like you said, people are quitting. And so it's it's not working. So I'm not your attorney for your association. I recognize the name, but you guys need to get somebody in who can really help your association manage this situation and do better in terms of getting the committees. Maybe you need to have an education session for them or you know a meeting with the board and the committees to find out where the dysfunction is and how can we move forward. But forcing them to sign a code of conduct by amending the bylaws illegally. Come on, that's not a good idea. And it's just going to create more problems. Okay, only a few more questions. Number 29 from a board member. In our CCNRs, it states, said premises shall be used for residential use only and construction thereon is restricted to attach single family dwellings and appurtenant structures and no business uses or activities of any kind whatsoever shall be permitted or conducted upon said premises. Can we stop the owner from short-term rentals with our CCNRs? Short answer, no. State law says that unless your CCNRs prohibit 
rentals, which would include short-term rentals, you can't prohibit it. And so trying to say no rentals based upon this, no business to be operated in your community, it won't fly and it's not going to be consistent with what the law is. So um, you can't do that. Next question, number 30 from a homeowner. I love this. Somebody who wants to be kept anonymous. Don't worry, we never use names here. I was asked to submit an architectural review, architectural request for new windows I installed in March. They were substantially approved in the meeting minutes and the architectural request form. They said subsequently approved in the meeting minutes and the architectural request form. Hope you got a signature. So it's going through my mind. The HOA is now saying that only the front windows were approved. However, the meeting minutes clearly spell out new back, new black windows and made no direction to what and where the windows are. The HOA is now contesting that it implied that it was for the front windows and not the other windows or sliding doors. The new windows were installed over a year ago. Do I have a case here? Gosh, I can't really comment on this unless I see everything. So I would really need to see the architectural request form that you submitted, the minutes and the approval. It seems like what you've given me, it was unclear when they approved it. So yeah, this is a sticky wicket for sure. I don't know if you have a case. It doesn't sound good. You might be able to argue that they approved it, but you didn't get the doors approved. That's for sure. Maybe the windows, although these cases are tricky. I don't think you have a good case here. I think you try to work it out with the board would be what I would recommend. Okay. Question 31 from a manager. Can you charge an inspection fee and a transfer fee in addition to the $400 disclosure? The only way you can charge the inspection and transfer fee would for it to be in the CCNRs. And when you'd have to comply with the law, we already shared with you in this presentation, the um, transfer fee versus disclosure fee cheat sheet. So you need to have that in your CCNRs in order to charge it. Next question from a board number 32. We are townhomes and we are responsible for roofs. There was a leak from the roof vent. We repaired the leak. Are we responsible for the inside damage that occurred in the attic? Likely you are. If you're on the board and you're responsible for the roofs um, and the roof vent wasn't, I'm assuming that it wasn't sealed properly. I don't know if it just, I don't know really what caused the leak. It looks like you're saying it was a leak from the roof vent. I don't know, you know, if the homeowner did something that may have contributed to it that may change my mind. But my feeling is, is that the association probably does have some liability here, but I'd need to hear some more facts. Question 33 from a homeowner. Is it legal or is it ethical for a community manager to continually use described homeowners as they volunteer or were hired this manager's relative to work on our homeowner database, repair things, and even work on major renovations with no other contractor or bids? Are there human resource steps to ensure background checks were completed? that I can ask for confirmation of. Okay, so we have a situation where we have a manager that is using a family member to either, there's a question mark here because you're saying volunteer in one place and then hired somewhere else um, to work on issues at the association. So is it a good idea? Probably not. If this is happening, you would want to make sure that there's full disclosure to the board and the community that this person is related to the manager and how much this person's being paid, what they're working on. Do they have expertise? Did we get bids? It's, but it's just really not a good idea. It's best to have outside vendors that aren't relatives of board members or managers. If a board member is going to hire a relative to work for the association and the board votes to do it, the board member would definitely have to vote, would have to disclose this before the vote under Arizona law. But again, it's never a good idea to hire your family members, close relatives to work in a position like this where your your board member has a relative that they want to hire. The manager has a relative. It never ends well. And I've been doing this now for 25 plus years. I haven't seen one that's worked out well. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, next question. We're down to our last two questions. This is from a board member. Our HOA management claims that there is a state law preventing them from citing violations to the same homeowner more than once every 15 days. This is for off-leash animals, loud music from a sound bar mounted to a shared townhouse wall and parking in front of a fire hydrant. 
This allows the violator to continue the unacceptable behavior for 14 more days. What does the law say about how often a homeowner can be cited for violating CCNR's regulations and policies? Very interesting. I am not aware of any law that says we have to wait 14 more days. So the board has the right to send out letters regarding different violations. Maybe it's their management company policy. I don't know, but there is nothing under Arizona law that would prohibit the board from sending out violation letters for different violations on a lot. Even if it's like trash cans one week and then the very next week it's trash cans again, you can still continue writing them regarding those violations. Question number 35 from a board member. Last question. One member of our small community assists on taking pictures of many people that come into our community for various reasons. These images are sometimes sent to various people outside the community for various reasons. Okay, that's a lot of use of various. I don't know (laughs) why they would be doing that. Sounds odd to me. Is this legal? Names and permission to photograph is rarely, if ever, asked. So no, this is very odd and this shouldn't be happening. And so I think that the board should have the association's attorney sending the owner who's doing this a letter asking them to cease and desist from doing this. Okay, let's see. So... We're at the end. Thanks so much for being here today. I'm sorry that I you weren't able to see me on the video today because we had a little bandwidth issue, but I'm so happy that you joined us here today for our first Friday. We had over 72 people here on Zoom with us and several live viewers on Facebook Live. And just so you know that I'm not in my PJs, I'm gonna turn my video on to say goodbye here soon. Sorry again that we had some technical difficulties today. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks everybody. Have a great weekend and I hope to see you at one of our future classes. Take care, everybody. Have a nice weekend. Bye. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 